You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today I'm with Dan Bader, who runs realpython.com, which is a massive learning resource for anyone looking to learn Python. The site itself is powered by Django, which is a web framework written in Python. Dan, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Nick. Super, super happy to be on the show, and uh, I'm excited where, where you're taking this podcast. Yeah, thanks a lot. Uh, do you want to start off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit about uh, RealPython? Yeah, sure. Um, well, so, yeah, so I'm Dan Bader. Uh, I run a uh, website with Python tutorials and uh, video courses and other resources like interap- interactive coding challenges, quizzes, stuff like that. Um, that's called realpython.com. And I think we're definitely among the largest largest sites. Like I can't actually think of another site that has so many publicly available like free tutorials out there. Um, that is not the official documentations or something like read the docs. Um, so we're getting about uh, 2 million unique visitors a month. Uh, comes down to like four and a half million uh, page views according to Google Analytics. And um, um, yeah, so we, we try to spread the gospel of Python essentially with the site. Yeah, no, you guys are doing a great job. It's pretty crazy. Like every time I Google for like a specific Python problem, it's either some Stack Overflow answer or like a massive blog post on, on your platform. Sweet. That's, which is that's great. great to hear. Yeah. So I don't know that much of the history behind RealPython. Did you like take over that site or did, did you develop it from scratch? Um, yeah, that's right. So, so the history of the site um, has been, um, so it was run by another team, it was initially started in 2012 uh, on the back of um, like a Kickstarter campaign. Um, and uh, where the, the previous owners, they did, uh, um, they, they created a Python book or a series of Python books and um, then also needed an associated website. And uh, I believe that's the reason like why, why it was started initially. And um, that was back in 2012 or I think like late 2012. And um, so uh, I came in, so I'd been doing some, um, you know, I've been building sort of, uh, um, I, I wrote a programming book about Python, which is like basically, basically like a bucket list item, like lifelong dream kind of thing. And uh, that, that book is called Python Tricks and it, it did um, pretty well. And um, um, I, I wanted to do more and I felt like it wasn't really possible to, um, you know, like doing this under my own name felt like the wrong way to go about it at a certain point because I wanted to involve other people. And then, you know, do you want to write for a site that's called danbader.com or do you want to write for a site that, um, you know, sounds like it's, it's more like a legitimate uh, entity out there. And so... Um, um, anyway, like we, we started chatting with the old with, with the old uh, previous owners of RealPython.com, and I ended up taking over the site in um, 2017, and um, or at the end of 2017, and uh, back then it was still hosted on uh, PHP um, uh, as a static site essentially. And uh, since then, I um, tore all of that down and rebuilt it from the ground up. Um, using Python, Django, so we have a proper CMS, we have an account functionality, um, and uh, all of those things that we can talk about at some point in the show. Nice. Yeah, I wasn't really sure if you took over an existing Django app or if you did it from the ground up, but now we know it's from the ground up. Mm-hmm. So was it just you who initially developed the site, or do you have like a small team? Um, so I'm still the sole um, developer on that. I'm, I'm hoping that that's gonna change soon because I feel like I'm, I'm the bottleneck for a lot of things and um, yeah so basically I 
you know, started with an empty project and then pip installed my way to uh, to the current um, like CMS that, that we use, content management system. And that's all built on top of Django. And um, actually using Django is, is just a, like a super... That's just been a super happy um, experience for me for that specific purpose. Um, we we're not running into any issues with performance, um, and uh, it's it's been like a very enjoyable development experience. Um, especially, you know, if I'm the only person working on the code, um, I'd rather like use something that that makes me feel really effective and f- gives me a lot of stuff out of the box. And yeah, yeah. It, it lit- to answer your question, actually, um, it, it it literally started with with an empty project, and uh, previously was just a static, a bunch of like static HTML um, hosted behind Apache, and I wanted to have some more, um, uh, uh, well, I don't want to say like advanced features, maybe, but I wanted to do things like, oh, you know, wouldn't it be cool if we had interactive quizzes on the website there, or wouldn't it be cool if um, we could, you know, maybe personalize your um, uh, like recommendations for articles and courses you should check out. Or like back then, we didn't even have courses hosted on the site. So that's something that happened um, at the start of this year. Um, so now it's actually like a complete uh, learning management system where you can take courses, um, you can watch videos, you can mark them complete, uh, you can bookmark them, you can um, get completion certificates. And um, it's, uh, it's now like a much more uh, like holistic experience. Like, when when I started, the first piece I worked on um, was just, you know, we're rendering out articles that are internally written in Markdown, and we want them to look nice and, and have, uh, for our users to have a fast experience when they're reading our tutorials. So before we go into a little bit more details about the app itself, uh, are you running the latest stable version of Django? Um, yep, that's right. Um, I might be, uh, I'm checking my requirements file here right now. I'm, two, I'm on 2.2.4, which I think is... Uh, I think there might be like a 2.2.7 now. Maybe I shouldn't say this publicly. There's probably some terrible security issue there that's exposed there. No, just kidding. Um, but hmm. uh, yeah, that, that should be the latest stable. And um, actually, that the Django 3.0 uh, release candidate came just came out. And um, I've been staying like pretty close to the, the, the updates there. And um, yeah, I'm guessing we'll, we'll be upgrading to that at some point uh, in, in 2020 when the 3.0 um, uh, final release comes out. Nice. So are you also running, uh, did you upgrade to Python 3 or are you still running 2x? Um, if this is on 3. So I started out on um, Python 3 from day one. And um, I believe it was also, it was also Django 2.0. Maybe it was the, one of the betas still. But um, yeah, I basically started with a blank slate, uh, Django 2 and, um, and Python 3. And I think it was 3.6 at the time, and now we're on like 3.7. I haven't upgraded to 3.8 yet. But yeah, I try, you know, I try to stay pretty close to um, uh, whatever the latest version is there because, um, yeah, it, as you probably know, you know, it just gets harder if you're, if you're a couple of versions behind, then, then um, it, it just becomes like a week-long project um, to update dependencies instead of um, ideally like a couple of hours or just a couple of minutes. And so, yeah, I stay to try to stay pretty close to that. And, and also it gives me like a lot of like personal enjoyment because I get to play with the latest and greatest version, which, you know, my uh, sort of previous experience, if you're, if you're working for a company, sometimes uh, there might be other kind of restrictions, you know, what, what you can use or what other developers agree on or, or not agree on. And so um, it was like a nice little piece of freedom uh, to be able to always run like the latest and greatest there. Yeah. Yeah. That's always a... Uh... A very scary situation when you don't touch your requirements at text file for a year and then you try to upgrade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm actually finding um, 
Yeah, I'd be curious how, how you manage that because I know you run your own infrastructure as well um, for, for your tutorials and courses. Um, like I found the GitHub, um, you know, the, the uh, what's it called? It used to be Dependa bot, I think, and then GitHub bought them. And now it's like an integrated feature into GitHub where GitHub will just tell you, hey, this, uh, this is an outdated uh, package. Here's a pull request that bumps that package to the latest. And so if you have a test setup uh, and like a CI setup, integrated on, on GitHub, I can just directly see, okay, this pull request, it looks like it didn't break anything in the test. So I have like a pretty pretty large like um, uh, suite of, of unit tests there, which I think is super important if you, especially if you're doing this alone, there's like no QA or nothing. Um, and I found that like an incredibly helpful tool because um, I, I always, you know, I'm always at least like peripherally aware, like, oh, there's five pull requests waiting for me. I should probably check them out and just, you know, merge them in if everything is okay. And um, yeah, I was just curious how if you're using something similar or if you're uh, what, what your workflow is there. Mm -mm. So for updating packages, uh, I still go the manual route where just you know I try to keep a pulse on on the community. But yeah, every couple of weeks I just go in there and, and take a look at what's new, and then just you know individually either upgrade one package or a couple if it looks like you know it wasn't a huge change, like you know like a major version or something like that. Yeah, less less stressful that way, I think, because the, the downside of having the automation there is that you always have something waiting for you, you know, that, that that demands your attention every time you go into into your uh, GitHub or, or code repository. But yeah, um, yeah. Also, I think too, it's like, well, sometimes it's like just because a new release is out and stable, it doesn't necessarily mean you know it's like ready for production. Like it might be from yeah. the library author's point of view like he hopes it is or she hopes it is but sometimes it's not so I'm, I'm always a little bit scared to jump up versions unless I have like a real need but at the same time yeah you can't just ignore it for a long time otherwise it becomes almost impossible you end up like rewriting your app after like two years yeah yeah exactly that that is like the, I feel like that's the big um uh you know nightmare scenario that I want to avoid that um at some point you're looking at this and you're like okay we could basically rewrite this from scratch um but yeah i, I agree with you like you, you if, if you're always on the bleeding edge it could also be a great way um to hurt yourself and so um you know i also try to strike a balance i mean that's the reason why i'm not running th python 3.8 um, right now in production for example it would probably be fine but I, I don't really need any of the new features right now for this app and so i'm, I'm just gonna hold off for a while and uh, and then upgrade at some later point right so speaking of your app uh is it a monolithic application, or do you have it broken up into like microservices? Um, it's it's pretty monolithic. So I mean, I run a couple of other sites as well. Uh, for example, the py, pycoders.com um, uh, Python newsletter, and um, then there is um, we have this like feedback tool um, that that I use on realpython.com. So if somebody wants to give feedback on a course, let's say, and we've also got that integrated into the books, at least the digital versions, they all have a feedback link at the end of a chapter. And um, so that's a separate app, more more like a not really it's not really like a service, but it's more uh, like a, a standalone like you know second uh, Django app. And I'm I'm actually walking back on that. Um, I think it's for for what I'm doing with just me or a very very small team. I think Monolith is is the way to go. Um, just because yeah, updating you know five apps is more challenging in my experience than just kind of having it all in, in one go. And it, I know there's you know, different scenarios and um, so this is purely speaking from, from my perspective and talking about realpython.com. Um, so I, I think like doing microservices is more like in sort of like a, a well, it's an architectural tool, but it's also like, a, um, you know, something that, that uh, it depends on how the organization is up. 
uh, is set up. So it's almost like an organizational tool. I think if you have a company that 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 where there's 500 developers and they they all need to uh, coordinate in some way, then I think that's a really powerful solution to go with a microservices approach. But I think if it's just one person or a very very small team, um, for for me it's been it's been beneficial to have it all in one monolithic app. Yeah, I totally agree with that. So most of my applications are monolithic as well because it's like yeah, it's like you know you're not Google unless you're Google. You know. Mm-hmm. And and you'll know, you know, when the time comes, like you will, you'll probably have the resources and uh, to to change things. Right. So in terms of your monolithic app, I mean, do you happen to know like roughly how large the app is, like lines of code, like files across your project, um, estimates? I could probably give you a real answer. This is tool. What's it called? Slock count. Uh, yeah. Let me just run that if I have it installed. If not, I'll I'll install it and we can run it later. But um, yeah, I'm very, very curious myself. Um, I'm not really, um, you know, like a Django professional. So, I, you know, I went through the old, what was it, like the voting app tutorial back in the day. And uh, I know my way a little bit around it. But so while, that you're, while you're trying to figure out the lines of code there, like, like how many Django apps do you have in your app? Um, let me check here. I would say uh, about 10. Can you give um, an example of? You know, maybe rattle off a couple of, of names for those apps. Um, yeah, sure. Let me pull that up. So we're uh, at around uh, 19,000 lines of Python here. And then oh, plus, wow. you know, HTML and all all the other um, stuff that would be in there. Yeah, that's just like roughly the size. And then as far as um, apps and whatnot go, drum roll. Um, <laughs> yeah, so some um, have, have broken things down. Uh, for example, um, I have like sort of like a core app that's called a blog and it should probably be called something different at this point. But I haven't renamed it yet. And that's that's kind of driving all the rendering and all that stuff for the um, the written articles. And it has like the core model for, you know, these are uh, topic categories and this is how they relate to individual articles. And um, um, if you pull up like a, a written tutorial on realpython.com, um, which is the main type of content, then this app will take care of it. Um, another app like you know right next to it alphabetically is called certificates and that's for completion certificates and so it has like all the endpoints for the the permalinks for the certificates and um the the validation um and the, the models for that and um of course i also have a, a common app that uh, isn't really an app as uh, it's just kind of like a package for me to throw in a bunch of like shared code you know some some utilities in there yeah that that sort of thing do you want to hear more uh, I think that's okay now, Be- only because like if you went down the whole list, then I don't think we'll ever finish the podcast. Yeah, which, it would take a while. Which I wouldn't mind at all, but I know you have like some type of constraints on time. Yeah. <laughs> actually, I think I said 10 apps, right? But I'm actually surprised it's more. It's one, two, three, four. So there's more there's more like 20, 23 in there. Um, wow. So just like high level stuff, like user authentication stuff, like payment gateways, like these things are all broken out, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So I have like a store app, or I have like a, a members app to handle the the subscription um, workflows and stuff, stuff like that. Um, and um, you know, like sometimes um, the the challenge, obviously, with with this stuff is when you break it down, you you make a best guess uh, effort. At, at least for me, and I'm like, okay, like what uh, what does make sense? Uh, okay, we want to do video courses on the site, so there's a videos app. 
Uh, turns out now, you know, a course is is uh, can be much more dynamic than that. So it could have uh, textual elements. Now, actually, the the books that we're selling, they're they're also courses internally, and so now um, they're but they're not videos. And so it doesn't really make sense for this app to be called that way. But um, kind of if you if you break down the the, the sort of domain, it it still makes sense sense I think for these things to be lumped together. But um, now I'd have to go back and like rename it, you know, and call this like courses or products or something like that. And um, I find like that is that is always like a moving target. You know, you're never never like fully uh, fully there. Or it's it's not. Um, let's just say um, it's not immutable. And what I like about uh, Django is that. It, it allows me to shift around things. And um, if I start out writing some apps, at least I have a structure in place that um, um, you know, allows me to break down things into, into sub-packages and kind of keep them separate. And even though if I'm probably not going to get it right the first time, um, I, have, um, I have a way or I have my app set up in a way where it's not super, super painful to then go in and make these refactors. I mean, it's still annoying. It's a lot of times you don't want to do it. That's why my app's still called videos in there. But um, I, I like that about Django. That was at least directionally, you know, pushing me into that, uh, to, towards that. Yeah, no, I think that's a very, very good framework feature to do that. Because, you know, like you say too, right? It's not immutable. It's always going to change. And like, there's no way you can ever think of like the perfect name before you get to writing the actual code and figuring out what it should be. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, I agree yeah. 100%. Like, for instance, I don't want to go too deep into this, but like I just broke out like promotions as being its own like type of app, you know, not a Django app, but like it's its own thing. And it has like discount codes and price parity and all this other stuff. But I didn't come to that originally. Like it took quite a while to get there. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like a lot of times in the beginning, you, you just don't know what uh, what features people need. Like, I mean, my, my philosophy the whole time with this stuff has been because I'm the sole developer on this thing. I want to ship, I always want to be shipping and then I want to ship like a minimal version of a feature and see if, if things get traction and then add more stuff to it. So, um, you know, and I think then, then the, similarly, like it, it just naturally happens that way where, you know, you have like a minimal version of something. Maybe you, you probably didn't have that promotions app in the beginning, right? Or like this mm -hmm. promotions package. And then over time you're like, oh yeah, this would be really cool. And now we've run like um, another sale or something. So it really makes sense to, to lock this down in, in a better way. And so um, it's it's been, yeah, I, I, think, I think that's the only way to do it. I mean, a lot of times I wish, you know, there was just a way to look at the crystal ball and be like, okay, here's the perfect like breakdown of the app. But I mean, if, if, if waterfall and like the failures uh, the, of, of the failures of the waterfall model have taught us anything, it's, it's pretty much that, that that's not really possible in software. So I think we're stuck with iteration and improving things over time. Yeah, totally agreed. So these apps themselves, are, are you using like server render templates with like little sprinkles of JavaScript or is this like API based with some, you know, JS heavy front end? Um, it's all server side um, templating. Which I think um, for for um, like a news site or at least for the types of content um, that we have there for the tutorials makes um, makes sense. And um, then there's some like dynamic parts um, sprinkled in there. I think like for some other things, I would probably do them differently now. Uh, for example, the quizzes. I think that those would be like a great um, great example of something that probably should be um, like a like a single page app essentially or like a sub app. So I'm not like fully like 
like bought into the model of like, oh, you know, the the only thing you ever have is like an index.html file and then it loads a bunch of um, uh, like JavaScript and that should then take care of everything. I think that there's apps where that makes sense. But um, I think for, for realpython.com, I would probably always have um, uh, like a mixture of approaches um, and, and rely heavily on, on server-side templating just uh, because I feel like it's it's making me very... Um, it's making me very efficient um, in, in terms of, you know, being able to, to iterate quickly and, and code um, stuff. And now I'm just a lot more proficient at, at, at Python than I am at JavaScript. Right. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And I'm fully on board with that style as well, because it's like, yeah, you're just displaying like documents, basically, and server-side rendering. You get the SEO without having to jump through hoops. It's a nice setup. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, Django was specifically built for that kind of um, use case. Uh, it was started in... Uh, it was initially built for um, a news website so so actually like you know uh, journalistic reporting and i forgot which one it was but that's sort of its origin and um uh it, it just seemed like a really really good fit um, like what i like the most about django specifically is that you get um a pretty big admin area um for free so you can just tell it like hey here's the models here the uh, fields that can be edited and then it'll it'll scaffold um an admin area where uh, people can go in and make changes and you can have permissions handling and all of that stuff. And I found that incredibly helpful, you know, especially initially um, as I was bringing on more people, um, being able to, yeah, just have a workflow there that um, that could be codified and it could be built into the app and then being able to just, um, you know, give people access to their own blog posts or then if we gain, uh, build more trust over time, you know, then maybe somebody could could also start editing other stuff. And uh, I found that very, very helpful and didn't have to, to build that stuff from scratch. Interesting. So you are using the built-in admin then for all of that? Uh, yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, for setting up courses, um, the, the quizzes, uh, all of that stuff is, is uh, relies heavily on the Django admin. I have some like custom views in there as well, or you know, um, it's it's pretty extensible too. So um, I have like custom validation rules and some like checks um, in there. Yeah, that's that's been working great. I mean, it's not the prettiest. That's kind of the downside um, of it. But um, for for our use case, I think it's it's a great balance. Yeah, totally. So I'm I'm pretty much the same way. It's like the admin in most of my personal apps are very, you know, sometimes they're not even existent because the frameworks I use don't have that built in. So oftentimes, like sometimes I don't even have an admin dashboard, and I just use like psql on the command line to do some monkeying around with the database but that gets old pretty fast sometimes <laughs> yeah yeah but it could get you pretty pretty far right like i mean yeah one thing that i do sometimes i'm using so i'm hosting this all on heroku and so um, i'm using the um you know the hosted version of postgres there as, as our database um, that that Heroku provides, and so it's pretty cool. Like you get a, a dashboard there where you can do um, create these things called data clips. So I could write a query in SQL and then store it in there, and I can use uh, the Heroku dashboard to rerun that query if you wanted. If I wanted to pull some stats, um, and uh, I mean that that is you know not like a super scalable way to do things, but it's it's good enough a lot of times, right? If it's a one-off thing then uh, I can do that and I can also give uh, access to other people that way. And um, I've, I found that kind of thing really powerful. And I mean, having some, some local script there that you just run from the command line, that, that is exactly uh, uh, exactly the same thing, essentially. And I, I do that a lot too, you know, where I have all kinds of like one-off import things or um, um, yeah, just, just one-off scripts that, that I would just run from the command line. Yeah, I love it. And that's a pretty cool feature of Heroku. I actually didn't know about that. So... 
before we move on to like the rest of your tech stack, there is one more thing I wanted to cover. Um, are you using any type of like WebSockets or what is it in Django? They actually, they have like a, like a channels feature now, I guess, or maybe you had it for a while. Yeah. So yeah, that's right. Uh, it's called Django uh, channels. I, I believe it's something you have to um, install separately. I'm not sure if that's, if that's going to change with three, three zero. Um, but, uh, uh, I personally, I don't use, um, any, any kind of WebSockets features, um, just because that, that app didn't have the need for it, um, until now. Um, but yeah, you can, you can definitely do it with, with Django. Yeah. Nice. So then for, um, like the rest of your stack, I mean, I guess number one is like, are you using Docker or no? Um, I'm using Docker locally. So I have, um, I have a compose file that, um, spins up uh, an environment that is the same, uh, uh, environment that, that I'm running the app, um, on in, in Heroku. So I can just go. Uh, spin that up and then boot my uh, my Python app locally in in my virtual environment, and um, it's going to find the same uh, version of Postgres, going to find the same version uh, of Redis, which I use for for caching, um, and uh, I, I use it for local development. I haven't Dockerized the um, the the main app, so I I essentially run this like at the yeah, just just in in like a local and um, virtual environment in the project folder. And the reason I've been doing that is just uh, the performance difference. And I don't know, maybe maybe it's a lot better now. But like I, I got annoyed with the delays in in auto reloading when I had it packaged in a Docker container. And um, I, th- I think a lot of it has maybe has to do with like um, you know the the Docker implementation on on macOS. I hear it's better on other uh, operating systems. But um, yeah, long story short, I, I use Docker uh, mostly for for local development and testing. Okay. So in testing, you're just building, that's the environment that all of your stuff gets run under, I guess? Mm-hmm. Yep, yeah, yeah, that's right. And then, uh, yeah, so so when I test locally, uh, and then uh, also the, the unit tests run inside a Docker container, I'm using, uh, I'm using CircleCI. And so, again, I have the same environment, the same versions of Postgres and all of that uh, pinned down. So we're, we're talking to the same version there uh in production and um so i have two ways of running the tests like one i could uh spin them up locally where it's all dockerized also the python apps running inside docker or um i could um um um, run them just in the local virtual environment at at sort of the the top level like if you're thinking inception stacks of like containers within containers (laughs) it's uh we're at the the base level of reality on my computer there and uh (laughs) and um uh yeah, so give, gives me some flexibility. I, a lot of times, like I wish, um, especially when I'm thinking about bringing on other developers um, there with this app, uh, that um, yeah, I think I'm gonna Dockerize the whole thing and basically write our instructions as um, if you if you're doing local development, here's how you do it with Docker, and that should be the default go-to because then we can just make it easier for for all of us to pin down the same versions, and uh, it's just easier for someone to get. Um, uh, to get set up with the app locally. So again, you know, it hasn't been a problem for me because I, I have my dev machine here, I have backups and, and I have everything um, um, set up and it's, it's a comfortable setup for me. But um, I, I think if, if we were working on this stuff with the larger team, I think I would probably default to Docker because it's just gonna get rid of all the headaches of like, oh, but it works here. And like, I've got this version of, oh, did you update your requirements? And we could just get rid of all of that and uh and just have it automatically rebuild the the container install all the dependencies right yeah in a perfect world it would be just basically like a docker compose up and then in 10 minutes everything may work on every operating system yeah yeah that'd be beautiful yeah that's the goal for sure 
So earlier you mentioned that uh, you're using Redis and you have some caching set up. Are you also using Celery? Um, I'm not using Celery. I'm using uh, a library called uh, Huey, like H-U-E-Y. Yeah, it, it basically uh, it, uh, it allows you to um, spin off um, tasks that run on a, a one or more worker processes. And um, so that way um, I can, you know, if I have something that, that talks to an API or something like pulling analytics or something like that, I can do that on a, on a different process and not block, um, uh, block the web um, server or the web app server. And um, yeah, Huey um, is sort of like a lighter weight version of Celery. And I think anytime you, you say something like that or like I say something like that, I feel like, okay, uh, you know, there's a reason it's, it's lighter weight because there's a lot of stuff in Celery that um, at some point you're, you're probably going to need. Um, and um, um, I've been pretty happy with Huey. Um, I think there's, there's some things... Um, I mean, I, I don't know, like how much how much you want to go into into this, but um, it it's cool that it's a lot smaller, like a lot easier to to actually like read the code base, and I like really like how the API is designed. But then um, you get some other stuff that that you would get from Celery or like a more more comprehensive package there. So you know, once again, it's kind of like what what are you starting with? Are you outgrowing things at some point? But um, um, it's super simple. Just uses Redis as the the task store, and um, I didn't have to set up anything, you know, like a RabbitMQ and and, and things like that. Um, so yeah. It's, it's working pretty well for that. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Like, if that works for you, then there's really no reason to switch, right? I, I actually have not used that library. Does it support, like, um, periodic interval tasks? Like, I want to run this every day at 2 a.m., stuff like that? Yeah, yeah, you can, you can do that, too. Um, I think one issue that I, that I ran uh, in, with it, uh, I ran into, was um, you can tell it to retry tasks if they don't get processed. But then if you hit the, if you exhaust the retry limit, let's say, you know, like some external service goes down and uh, eventually you've like exhausted your retry limit um, because you're just telling it like, hey, retry this 10 times and wait five minutes in between. Um, it's just going to drop the task. And I haven't really found a way yet um, to, you know, to make tasks more persistent. So for some things I had to build, uh, you know, like a, well, uh, yeah, I had to build like a database table for it and be like, okay, if we get this webhook, we're going to store it here and we're going to make sure this this gets taken care of. And so um, initially, you know, when I when I started, I was like, oh, okay, I can just rely 100% for the background task processing. I can just re rely 100% on something like like Huey. Um, but again, like I think it's more like an architectural decision at some point where you're like, okay, stuff that actually absolutely has to happen, maybe it should have a database row and maybe it should be represented in some way so we can audit it and make sure it actually worked. Um, but I feel like, um, I worked with Celery in the past, and I feel like it, it was better at that kind of thing where, um, you know, you could inspect tasks and there were some admin features and you could actually take a look at what's been processed and what's not been processed and restarted. And so I think that's that's kind of what, what I'm missing a little bit from Huey. Yeah, you know, maybe maybe there's it's, it's easy to switch to, to a, a different thing there. Um, and uh, it's gotten me this far, so that's not too bad. Yeah, no, I would say it's definitely successful given... You know, you're not running at like Google scale, but I mean, you're dealing with millions of page views. Like there's a lot of traffic going to your site. Um, yeah, yeah, thanks. I mean, yeah, it's been, um, it's, it's one of my like nightmare scenarios is, is when the website goes down. So I want to I wanna definitely avoid that. And being the sole developer, um, you know, the, all those like alerts are going to me. And that means I have to get up in the middle of the night or like when I'm on vacation or when I'm somewhere and the website goes down, um, you know, that, that could cost me a day. And like it could potentially be a really annoying situation and not, you know, 
that's going to be annoying for me, but it's also going to be literally annoying for hundreds of thousands of people, which is a, a scary amount of responsibility. I mean, we're talking Python tutorials, right? Like as much as I'm um, um, sort of like obsessed with that stuff and, and I think it's super important. There are more important things in the world. Like we're not, it's not like a medical emergency if our website goes down or anything like that. But um, at the same time, you know, I, I really feel like a big responsibility for, for the site to be up and be accessible. And so I'm like always trying to err on the site of, of having infrastructure and having a setup that is... Um, uh, stable and is easy to maintain and doesn't require like a lot of uh, yeah I don't know like arcane stuff to keep it could be keep it up and running like I'm super happy when Heroku sends me an email and they're like hey does something happen to your your uh, database there so we switched it over to the primary and we've switched it over to the follower and we're, we're like rebuilding the primary and then I get an email from them like 10 minutes later okay we, we're, we're back like you took a hit in performance but it's all good um, because if I had been running that on my own infrastructure you know it would have been me like SSHing into this thing seeing if I can restart it or like figuring out what's going on and um, I'm I'm like very happy to pay someone else money uh, to take care of that stuff for me yeah for sure so you talked about like uh, getting error reports sent to you and stuff like that. Are you using any third-party SaaS tools for that? For like yeah. logging metrics, error reporting? Yeah, so I'm using a paper trail for um, just storing logs. And um, and then there I have some alerts set up that, that pull out um, stuff from the logs. So if there was some traceback or something, I would get uh, an email. I also would get it in Slack and then through that on my phone. And then for uptime monitoring, I'm using a tool called um, FreshPing. And um, yeah, you know, they'll... they'll ping the site and then i also get a report on my phone um, via slack so i've been basically like been piping everything into slack and um, then have the slack app on my phone and then have notifications for that channel enabled like 24 hours um, a day and uh, i feel like that's a pretty good setup i mean obviously then the downside is okay what if i don't know aws goes down and then slack goes down because of that because they're hosted on there i think and so then your your monitoring breaks down but um yeah can't can't protect against anything i i feel like i'm 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 like always defending my choices here but i'm hoping like it's interesting you know if if, uh, if you're listening uh to to talk about some of the rationale um behind it but uh, nick you let me know if that if that works for your podcast format <laughs> sure yeah i love it when uh people ask questions to the, to the guests or myself or anything like that so we'll go over stuff like that at the end. So, you know, we'll, we'll throw out your Twitter handle if people want to tag you on there for questions. Oh, yeah, sure. But uh, yeah, no, it sounds great that you have like a single source of truth for all the reporting stuff. And uh, where do you draw the line, right? When it comes to like, well, what happens if Heroku goes down or AWS goes down? Like, yeah, I mean, it is a Python website, but it's not like a Mars rover thing. But not to discount your site at all, but I think for <laughs> most people, like you just have to like, understand and you know things happen very once in a while like infrastructure goes down that you can't control and you're going to have a little bit of downtime yeah yeah absolutely and and also you know i think it's it's a great way to find that that new uh, find a lot of appreciation for you know these large sites that rarely if ever go down and they're pushing a lot fast. i mean i can't remember like the last time like google.com was down right or like amazon or like um and it's it's uh uh I mean, it must be must be really stressful and take a lot of effort and a lot of uh, um, you know good architectural choices to to get to that point because um, yeah, it's uh, to 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 really get to those like how many nines or whatever you want to have at the comma uh, after the comma is 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 hard and uh, 
and uh, thankfully we don't have to be there absolutely with uh, with a tutorial website but um, you know we have paying customers and everything so definitely trying to keep like downtimes to a minimum and i think that also includes you know like one of the things that drives me crazy like I, in the past I was using um like a, a, a third-party platform to host my courses and then every time they would roll out a code change that thing would go down for 15 minutes and it would just like error out with like uh, like a timeout or, or you would get like a 500 sometimes and um I just think like what you know what this is such a terrible experience i i never want to expose my users to that so um you know so now if we do a deploy like the worst thing that could happen really is uh is that someone is getting maybe like a five to ten second delay on that particular page view but it's going to be completely seamless and um and uh and it also allows me um, to, to make changes to the site without worrying about you know uh giving everyone a bad experience or having like a huge downtime there and so I think that sort of thing really has a big impact because if it's, um, you know, every time I deploy, if I have to take down the site for five minutes, that would not really fly, I think. That would be a super annoying experience for our readers and viewers. And um, so, yeah, I think that definitely has an impact then, but, you know, hopefully nobody would really uh, get injured if if the site is down for a couple of minutes. Right. No, yeah, for sure. When you're dealing with, like, paying customers, you know, even, yeah, even like 30 seconds or a minute of downtime, you know, someone just hops on in their spare time and, they're like, I want to watch this video now because that's the only time I have. It's it's really important to keep things up. You mentioned uh, payments. So what type of payment gateways are you using? Um, I am using um, a, a payment gateway. or It's, it's actually um, a reseller. They're called uh, Paddle at paddle.com. And so what they do, um, they take care of the all of the tax obligations as well. So you're basically buying uh, like a subscription or buying a product through them. And they will um, remit the taxes to all of the local governments, you know, with uh, the, all the, um, like the EU has a digital uh, value added tax. And it will send people um, like a proper invoice and also give them a, a way to, to uh, either not have the tax or get it back if, if there's like some special exemption rules that they have. And um, this stuff is, is just so... Uh, super fractal, I think, you know, because so many countries or legislations are they're starting their own programs there. And I was like, I am, this is going to destroy me if I have to build this on top of Stripe and then get people to write invoices. And so I've been, I've been quite happy with, um, with Paddle, especially for their uh, subscription flows. And um, they have a really super responsive um, team there. And um, yeah, that's, that's the service that I use. A similar service is called FastSpring. Um, that I'm still using for some things, but uh, essentially trying to, to migrate away from them because um, they are like very much the opposite, you know, not so responsive. And uh, it's, I feel like the things are not, there's nothing really happening. Like there's, there's, it's just kind of static. There's no future development. But uh, yeah, I, I Paddle, I'm, I'm using Paddle. Cool. So you don't need to get into like, you know, how much revenue you make and all that stuff, but I've actually never heard of Paddle before. Do you know offhand, like how much they take extra compared to Stripe? Like per transaction, um, I mean, all of this stuff is negotiable, right? Um, so they're uh, they're a little bit more expensive than Stripe. So I think if if you have like the base fee that Stripe has, and then maybe add like another one to two percent um, for for Paddle to to process um, the the taxes and the invoicing and all of that stuff. Um, so yeah, that's that's about the extent um, hmm. of what the what the price difference is. Yeah. So that's actually, that's not too bad because Stripe is like 2.9% and then like 30 cents for every transaction. But, you know, if Paddle is like, you know, 5% or something like 2% more, basically, that seems like a pretty good deal not to have to deal with all that tax garbage, you know? I mean, for not, for not going to jail? 
<laughs> yeah, for not going to jail and also like drain your soul. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because I mean, to me, that stuff is, is very, very annoying. And I'm, I'm sure it's for, you know, anyone who has to deal with that stuff uh, and like get the taxes remitted and whatnot is, is annoying too. Um, but uh, it's it's just a great way to get bogged down. And so I look at it more like, okay, you know, if I had to employ someone uh, basically to help me with bookkeeping and do all of that stuff, that would probably cost more than this this um, this extra fee that I'm paying there. So I think it's at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's always like a, a trade-off, like what could you do or could I spend like, you know, 20 hours um, a month to to um, do that stuff myself um, is that going to be more or less like the two percent difference right and so um, i've always kind of been leaning more towards okay i'll get a service that takes care of that and there, there's things um, there's services that, that plug into stripe as well um quaderno i think is a, uh, is a is a good one um, especially for the european market and that can do that as well but then remitting that tax to the local governments is, is still on you you know so i would have to go and like oh okay so we have like 15 bucks here go to the the government in poland and then 15 bucks go to you know france and um i, I think that would just drive me crazy if i had had to do this like once a quarter or once a year yeah absolutely so does paddle also support uh paypal as well or no oh yeah so they they're actually um they're 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 supporting paypal um, credit cards and um uh apple pay as well and i'm not sure about the google wallet stuff or google pay but definitely apple pay i can't say a lot of people are using that i don't actually know but um the cool thing is i don't have to um it's, it's like an adapter in front of um uh in front of you know the credit card processor and and paypal so i only have to deal with a single api and i don't have to um, implement uh, paypal uh, purchases directly for example yeah that's almost worth the two percent on its own <laughs> yeah that's a good point actually yeah yeah i didn't even mention that in the beginning but um yeah for me like the, the initial thought was okay this tax stuff sounds super complicated it's only going to get worse right so I'll, I'll better get on top of this um and then but then yeah it's a huge benefit being able to accept payments via paypal um, as well and um uh and, and and having a single point of, of contact there you know that can like, that i can reach out to and like um, they have a good dashboard where i can refund orders and and, and uh, figure out what's happening so um yeah i'm pretty happy with that and obviously that's a super important uh, piece you know if you're if you're running any kind of like online store or anything like that um you want something that's that's super stable i mean i think stripe is just is the gold standard when it comes to apis and documentation i mean it's just it's just a joy to work with it um, so I, I missed that a little bit, but, uh, on balance, it's good. Yeah. Not going to jail, not dealing with taxes is, is, uh, the price to pay. Mm -hmm. So lastly, on SaaS tools, like external ones that you might be using, uh, what do you use for sending out emails? Um, I use SendGrid. So they've, uh, I think they're owned by Twilio now and, um, yeah, pr been pretty happy with them. So I, I use SendGrid, uh, SendGrid's API to send out the PyCoders newsletter and then also the the emails um, from the the real Python uh, backend. So we'll tell you about new courses and, and stuff like that, new articles coming out, or if you have a new comment or a reply to one of your comments. Um, those are all powered by SendGrid, and um, yeah, pretty happy with it. I feel like it's at a reasonable price. Can't complain about the delivery rates and whatnot, which um, is is really important. And and the other thing that's super important with an email um, API, I think, is um, you know, are they uh, how I guess like how respected they are, like what their sending reputation is, because um, uh, you're going to be affected by that. Like if they get blacklisted for some reason, then your emails are not going to come through, even if you maybe didn't do anything wrong. And so um, 
been pretty happy with SendGrid there and tried some other options in the past that weren't working out so great. But um, yeah, that's what I use. Right. Yeah, no, SendGrid's a solid service. I've used a couple of them like Mailgun and even like Amazon SES for a bit. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think that's a good option too. Yeah, I've... Um... Oh, yeah. So what's cool with SendGrid, um, they have uh, a batch endpoint where where they do some templating on their end. So uh, I use that for for PyCoders um, instead of telling, you know, so PyCoders um, is a weekly newsletter. It goes out to about 70,000-ish um, uh, developers every week. And so um, for sending those through the API, I didn't want to make like one API call for each individual email. And so what you can do with SendGrid, you can tell it like, oh, here's a, a thousand email addresses, here's the content, and then here are some overrides that I want you to um, like replace inside the content. I'm not sure if maybe SES does that now too, but back then when I built this thing, I, I couldn't really find that. And um, that made the whole implementation a lot simpler, you know, because then uh, I'm just firing off these like 70 uh, um, API calls there. I don't have to worry about rate limiting or actually, um, you know, making sure the, the emails go out uh, to everyone right around the same time. And um, I've been very ha happy with that feature uh, in SendGrid. Nice. So we covered quite a few things, payment gateways, error reporting, email. Are there any other uh, third-party SaaS tools that you depend on? Yeah, uh, Cloudflare. So we have Cloudflare in front of everything. And um, that's just been a great, um, great tool. Like I've been super happy with the, the, the features that they provide. Um, I use it for things like uh, image recompression. Um, so it will detect your browser and you know, if you're on Chrome or Firefox, it will send you a, a WebP version of the same image, for example. Um, you know, if it originally was, uh, let's say a JPEG or something, uh, they, they can recompress images and make, uh, reduce the um, delivery time if, if the recompressed image is, is smaller than, uh, and you're, it's a special feature in your browser or special format that, that your browser supports, you get that specific version. Whereas um, I internally just have to deal with, you know, a PNG version of this uh, image or like a high quality JPEG and then they will take care of that. Um, the, the actual delivery. Um, they also do HTTP2 in front of everything. So if you have a browser that supports that, which um, most of them do uh, these days, uh, you get a, a faster experience as well. And um, I also like them for their uh, for their rate limiting features because we we've been getting attacked like quite a bit where people are trying to run some kind of DDoS. Um, uh, thing on, on the website and um, Cloudflare has been very uh, helpful in keeping those under control. Yeah, that's one of the, the best features of Cloudflare, I think. Just some type of DDoS prevention yeah. or help help against that. Yeah. So I guess, do you have them serving your uh, SSL certificates also? Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, they also do the, the SSL. Well, I don't think they terminate it because then they also talk SSL to Heroku. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, I have my uh, the certificate set up through them as well. So how does that work with Heroku? Like, are you running, well, actually, we didn't even get to this, but are you running G-Unicorn or UWSGI for your app server? Uh, I'm running G-Unicorn, yeah. And is that something that, like, Heroku just handles for you, or do you get to configure that? Um, so you actually have to configure it yourself. So the way, basically, what Heroku is, um, it's basically like a Docker container before they were Docker containers. So not, not mm -hmm. really exactly, but you tell it, like, um, you know, here, here are all my requirements that I need. I want a Python 3.7.3 environment or 3.8 or what have you. And uh, then they will just spin that up in some kind of internal container that they use, install all of your dependencies, and, uh, and then call the 
uh, spawn the process that you're telling it to. So you basically, you give it a list of processes that you want spawned in different containers. So I have one that says, you know, this is my web app. And what it does, it, it just runs G-Unicorn and points to the whiskey application. So then uh, Heroku is going to go, okay, I've installed everything. Like here's, here's this thing. Uh, we're going to boot up this container and then start um, G-Unicorn. So you could, uh, um, you could uh, use any kind of setup you could think of uh, internally, as long as it talks HTTP. So, so uh, you know, uh, Heroku is just going to take an HTTP request uh, through the load balancer and then pass it to one of your containers by talking HTTP directly into it. Um, yeah, so you just give Heroku a list of the processes that you want to run. So maybe you know a couple of background workers and like a couple of web tier uh, or web web apps, uh, web app servers, and um, it's it's going to do that stuff for you. And so there's a lot of flexibility in terms of how this app would actually run internally. I mean, it could just be like a bash script or whatever that uh, that serves HTML, if that's possible. I'm sure it is. Um, right. Yeah. So how many um, how many Heroku dinos and workers do you have running? Um, so I'm running this on four um, 2x dinos and then uh, one one worker. Okay. So that one worker, that was for Huey, I guess, or? Yeah, that's for Huey. And then it's just going to take care of things like, oh, if you subscribe to our mailing list, for example, um, the, 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 that flow actually happens on um, directly on realpython.com, like through the, the, the web server, but then actually adding you to the email list, that's an API call that happens on the back end. Um, so I, I use it for things like that. So it doesn't, it doesn't get a lot of load load. Like there's some, you know, occasional like nighttime tasks. I'm like pulling stats and analytics and stuff like that. And so that's, that's pretty, um, pretty lightweight still. Yeah. But then also like with CloudFront sitting in front of all of this, I mean, I guess that CloudFront takes like the blunt of all the traffic, right? Mostly. Um, so Cl- Cloudflare or Cloudflare. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Um, yeah. Yeah, it does. Like definitely for the static images. So basically what the web server, um, the only thing the web server takes care of is uh, um, is the the dynamic HTML because um, the the images uh, they will be cached or like li- anything you tell Cloudflare uh, to cache they will try to hold on to and then obviously they're, they're going to ask your backend every once in a while like hey you know we need this file again um, but um, yeah so the good news is we don't have to serve like static files or anything from from the actual like Heroku server. Um, but it, 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 they are being served from there initially, which is maybe an interesting aspect of this all. Um, so I'm not publishing like static assets to S3 or something and then load them from there. But uh, I use this thing called um, uh, white noise. Um, I use white noise for this. And so um, it basically we, it serves static assets from your application server, which you're not really supposed to do that, but it's actually perfectly fine if you have a caching CDN in front of it, uh, because then the CDN is going to hold on to those images and uh, and you're going to serve copies off them um, for, for any sub, um, subsequent requests. And um, I found that just makes... Um, uh, deployment super simple because I know okay you know this file is getting it's just getting pulled from the same backend it makes local testing super simple and um, I don't have to have this um, sort of okay we're syncing all of our uh, static assets to an S3 bucket or to some other server and then serving them from there statically um, and I, I don't think there's a performance impact either because the like 99.999% of the traffic will be soaked up by by the CDN and then they're also going to do the imagery compression and all that stuff so um, yeah, pretty happy with that setup. And um, uh, yeah, the thing is called White Noise. That's the the library's name. Interesting. So yeah, no, it sounds like your CDN is like pull-based. Like it just 
pulls down the one image that it needs and then it'll just cache that and everything else is good. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, well, actually speaking of images, um, so that, that's where we have sort of a, a microservice there in between, uh, I call it RoboCrop. So it's like our image cropping service and resizer. So I can tell it, um, you know, we have, uh, so we're doing these like pretty intricate um, title artworks for for uh, our articles um, that are all like custom designed. And uh, I want like a really high quality experience for people there. But at the same time, you know, if you're reading on your mobile phone, we don't want this to download like a megabyte of images. Um, but maybe we want that if you're watching this on your like 4K screen uh, at home. So, um, or like if you're reading an article. Um, uh, I'm using a separate app that's kind of like a microservice, I guess, in that regard, where we can, it's an image proxy, it's a resizing image proxy, and I can just tell it to like, hey, we want this image, um, it's originally hosted here, um, take it and then create like different versions of it, and then we can point the browser uh, through those different versions and, and ask the browser to make a, a selection there uh, through the, the source set um, attribute uh, in, in an image tag. And um, that's that's been working quite well. And uh, I think it really helped like reduce our load t- time if you're um, you know on a smaller screen or if uh, you have a, a like a low bandwidth setting in your browser and the browser can also go like, okay, I'm going to go with, you know, the the 400 by 400 uh, pixel version of this image and I'm not going to pull like the full like uh, uh, full HD version of it or whatever. Yeah, because I remember, like, I loaded up the homepage to realpython.com, and it was, like, like 75 trillion images of, like, every tutorial picture ever. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I need to change that. You know, we're, we're, we've kind of had this, like, success disaster where we have, I mean, if I say that myself, it's kind of, it's a bit awkward what I'm going to say. It. You know, we have all this awesome content there and that, that I really stand behind. That's really, really good. And, you know, we put so much effort into it. Um, it's like a couple of, uh, uh, like, separate, like, editing steps and review steps. And um, we, we're basically, like, publishing a magazine there, you know, with, like, two articles every week and one course and maybe sometimes some extra stuff. Um, and I want to get this to the point where we're doing, like, four or five pieces of content every single week. And so now the problem is the the uh the the landing page or the um well i guess the the home page um is this ginormous list of um of these massive images and uh i need um like a better structure for this where uh, maybe we'll highlight the most recent stuff and then give you recommendations um based on what you looked at earlier or like you know i need a different uh curation model there and uh, I've been working on some of that stuff. So we have learning paths now and there's different uh, categories you can browse the site by. But when you go there for the first time, it is uh, like you were saying, you know, it's a wall of images. And so the resizing helped a lot with uh, making making that actually viable. But I have to say, though, at least like I didn't check it on like a mobile device, but on my desktop, it, it was fine. And honestly, I prefer seeing one page of results instead of like infinite scroll or like seeing like 35 pages because, you know, who's going to page 29? Like pretty much nobody. Exactly. Yeah, that's the other thing. I mean, we have a search um, system that's just built on top of um, Postgres full text search that I think works quite well. But um, at the end of the day, if you're going to search, you're probably most likely just going to use Google or find us find us that way. And so, yeah, I've been I've been going back and forth on this. I mean, a, a lot of times I think this this stuff needs to be like A/B tested and, and an analytics driven, right? What if we change the homepage? What's going to happen? Um, is it going to lead to more engagement, or uh, are people going to be able to learn more if we had a different format? Um, so, yeah, I haven't haven't really touched it, but um, it's it's good to hear your site there as well. It's cool to have <laughs> all the images there. It's it's great if it's not when it's not crashing your browser, then that's that's even better to hear. Yeah, definitely. So just to switch gears a little bit, going back to Heroku, do you want to just rattle off maybe some 
what are they called in Heroku add-ons, I think? Like, which ones are you using? Yeah, sure. I'm looking at them now. So there's Heroku Postgres, um, Heroku Redis, uh, the Heroku Scheduler, which I use for some, like, one-off tasks. Um, for example, like, cleaning out, like, old uh, revisions of, of models or something. I, I don't have that on, on, the, on the background worker. It's just something that, you know, I run, like, once a week um, through the scheduler. So, like, the, what the scheduler does, it, it just runs, like, a, a script from the command line in, in your Heroku environment. Um, and then I've got uh, Paper Trail, which is the log monitoring um, tool that I use. And that's it, actually. Oh, wow. So I don't know if you're open to sharing this, but can you give estimates or like how much do you actually pay for Heroku? Because a lot of people, right, it's like they love the idea of how easy it is to deploy. But then it's like you get that monthly bill and it's like, uh, I don't know about that now. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's about 700 US, give or take. So that's mm. for that's not just for realpython.com. That's also for the other um, stuff there. Uh, for example, I have like a staging environment for it, um, which is like a full copy, but at a smaller scale. Um, and um, yeah, so it's definitely, I mean, you know, and I didn't start out that way, um, but uh, as the traffic grew, um, yeah, you know, I ha- had to crank that up more. So I think, you know, I think in, a, in another universe, like if RealPython had stayed a static site, maybe it would actually be running on, you know, something like a Netlify or something like that, where you could run this for dirt cheap and still push a lot of traffic. But since I wanted more and more dynamic features and I wanted to have the full CMS, um, that that was kind of the, the trade-off there. And um, I'm, I am getting like more than $700 worth of value out of this setup every single month, just because I don't have to spend... Um, so much time on maintaining my infrastructure there. I think I could easily, um, uh, like I, I could run this myself and I could easily spend um, many hours um, every month or you know, at least um, sort of averaged out when, whenever there is something or there's like a big upgrade that needs to happen um, where I would probably end up with the same ballpark number or possibly higher if you factor in like backlash of like, oh, the site was down, you know, I'm paying for access and like now it's not working. So yeah. I'm both sad and happy about the price. Yeah, honestly, I thought it was going to be a higher number. I mean, 700 is still 700 bucks a month, but given what you're getting, I don't think it's that bad, especially with your specific site where it's like, you know, I'm not going to ask you how much you make per month or whatever, but it's it's a lot more than 700, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, you know, otherwise I, I wouldn't be paying the 700. I mean, at least I want to break even on this stuff, right? And so it's... Yeah. Um, uh, um, yeah, I mean, I, and I think that's the way to look at it, right? Like with any any kind of business, um, um, you you have to, yeah, think think about that kind of thing. Like even as a, I think especially as a sole um, developer, um, because uh, you know there's, there's always different options, but a lot of times I feel like it's just kind of like a market price, right? I could run this whole thing on my own infrastructure or like a Linode or DigitalOcean um, VM or something. Um, but then if I didn't want to do the maintenance myself, I would probably have to pay a consultant um, money every month to keep the lights on and like install patches and stuff and, you know, upgrade the Linux kernel. And like when there's the latest like Intel mitigation that needs to be installed. Um, and and here like Heroku is taking care of it for me. And so I look at it that way. Like I don't look at it as like, oh, here's 700 bucks down the drain every month. Um, but it's more like it's it's actually a bargain, I think. You know, if I had to hire someone to do this, um, if I didn't want to do it myself, it would probably be a lot more expensive than that every single month, plus the infrastructure costs. Sure. Yeah. I mean, 
if you were to hire some developer in, in the US to do something like that to, with that type of experience, like that could be a hundred, 200 bucks an hour. And it's like, that goes up really fast when you're dealing with infrastructure stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned you had uh, like a staging setup with Heroku. Uh, do you want to just like walk us through what your deployment process looks like from like DevBox to running in production? Um, yeah, so I'll um, I'll make a change here. I'll create a local Git branch, um, make a change here, test locally, uh, and then push that to GitHub um, where I'll create a pull request. And then I'll have um, uh, my testing, my automated testing run again in the uh, on Circle CI, so in a cloud environment. So I get that attached to the pull request and I can kind of review everything. So I, I pretty much do like one person code reviews for this stuff um, as well, just because it's a workflow that, that I really like um, being able to, you know, see all the changes that are going um, are about to go live. And um, when I'm happy with the changes there, like the change set in that pull request, I'll merge it to master. So I want master always to be uh, clean and deployable. And uh, I'll merge it to master, and then um, it'll automatically get deployed to the staging environment. So in Heroku, you can set up this thing called pipelines, which um, are deployment pipelines. So you can have like one or more staging environments, and then you could push uh, versions that you're happy with out to uh, production. And so it goes to a staging environment. Um, so I, I can test it there. And, um, and then I can take that exact version and that exact um, sort of build with all the dependencies and everything, like think like a Docker container, and I can, I can flip that live uh, in production, and that's going to take you know, a couple of seconds for it to boot up, and then that version is live. And um, I also get some metrics tracking from Heroku. You know, this is the throughput, like here's the latency, um, here are all these things. And so if I'm not happy with the deploy in production, I can quickly go back uh, as long as I have, you know, the proper migrations in place or I have um, some code in place that, that can actually like uh, uh, roll back to a previous point in the, in the data model. And um, uh, that's been super helpful, that workflow. And uh, I, I really like it. I feel like it makes me very um, effective. And it, it's also... Um, several rounds of testing essentially with more and more production-like environments and uh and then i can flip it live and watch the the metrics and the stats and if i see you know a spike and like oh shoot you know we're getting a bunch of 500s here i'll just immediately roll back to the previous version and then i can figure out what happened without actually affecting um, people's experience and um that that's probably one of the my favorite features there in heroku just having that be so seamless and uh so so tightly integrated especially with the the metrics and 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 the stats that they provide um has been really really helpful yeah no that sounds like a very very sane workflow and and really it's pretty tight too for one person like you're doing things like you know by the books kind of like all angles are covered like i really like that you go the style of doing like a one person code review mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 that's I awesome. Think, I think that's been been really helpful, and, and I'm I always have an eye on like, okay, there's going to be a time hopefully where I'll be working on this with more developers, and uh, then I don't want to have like a mess of, oh here you know like here's the zip file, like just extract that and make sure you're on Windows XP like Service Pack seven and uh, do a dance, you know, rain dance for, for it to to actually run and like. Um, uh, so so yeah, having having that workflow in place, I think from day one is is nice and i just like you know having things nice and tidy there yeah so now it's like you know that gets us into production and like the next step here is like you know as it's running in production like do you have any uh like plans for disasters like unexpected events and malicious users even things like that 
like database backups and oh, yeah, user generated yeah. files. Yeah, so I'm I'm using again like I'm using uh, um, Heroku to uh, so they're they're keeping uh, backups of the database, and um, the database is set up in a way where there's a primary and a follower. So there's always a copy. I mean, obviously that's not going to help you if somebody were to get into the site and then like delete all the data. But um, then I also have local copies in in other places, um, and then. Um, some like static files uh, are actually being served or like basically dy dynamic static files doesn't really make sense but when when you upload something to the site um, let's say when we upload an article image um, that's not part of the the code base but that's something that's added as part of the cms workflow then that goes into an s3 bucket and then that also gets surfed uh, through Cloudflare. And so for that stuff, um, I also have backups. Um, so yeah, I could be spin, I could spin the app up um, pretty quickly. And um, as long as Heroku doesn't go up in flames, um, it should be super quick actually to, to restore this thing from scratch. Like I could, I think I could rebuild it um, pretty quickly. And as I, as I'm saying, I think I should probably, you know, do this and like document it in some way. So when I have to do it, I have, have like a manual for it. But um, yeah, I've, I'm I'm feeling uh, pretty pretty peaceful there. Yeah, no, because that's actually a good point about the images. I was going to ask you. It's like, yeah, you have all of these thumbnails, and that has to be like uploaded somewhere. But S three is the spot. Um, yeah. But in a related note, what about videos? So are you, are you using like Vimeo or something else for that? Um, yeah, I'm using uh, Vimeo as a the the like their pro. Um, uh, plan to host uh, the video files and handle all the like recompression, all of that stuff, um, because uh, I wanted to make sure uh, everybody has a good viewing experience, so no matter what their connection quality is. And um, and yeah, I think I think they're a pretty good solution there. And I was also thinking about rolling my own. You know, what if I built like my own little CDN that was serving this from S3 or something like that? And I think that is potentially an option for the future. But um, once again, you know. Um, if there's some kind of like browser issue or some device that doesn't like that type of video encoding, I can just rely on Vimeo to fix it because they're incentivized to, to uh, you know, they, they have like tons of engineers working on that and, and professionals that are, um, that, that, that know how to do video encoding correctly. And so I didn't want to reinvent that from scratch. Yeah. No, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Vimeo also. Like their player is actually quite nice. I never had any complaints about it. Yeah. I like it too. Um, and then, yeah, and it has a good API so you can, integrated with uh, with the rest of your site and mm -hmm. um yeah been been quite happy with, about that so we're kind of coming up at the end here so do you have any like advice for others who are running similar stacks in production like what's your best tips and lessons learned <laughs> that's a good question um let's see i think um i think we're still in this like really cool golden age of the sole developer you know especially if you're a web developer you can do a lot of cool things with uh, all the modern services and tooling you have at your fingertips, right? Like one person could run the, all the infrastructure for a fairly big site. And um, that's kind of magical. And who knows how long this is going to last, you know? Like, is this going to, we're going to have the same opportunities like 10 years from now, 20 years from now? I don't know. I hope so. But um, what I want to say is, I guess, don't be discouraged uh, by any of that stuff and you can get pretty far just with a one person um, operation there if you if you're comfortable with uh, you know paying for services um, relying on services and finding good quality uh, components there that that you can use so that is my very vague advice for anybody listening 
No, it's good advice. It's like trade a little bit of money for just getting your thing up because who knows, like getting it up and out there is the most important thing because who knows what's going to happen in five years. Exactly. Yeah. And if, if you find success, you know, you're going to find ways to, um, then you're going to figure it out. But like the worst case scenario, and I think unfortunately the most common scenario is, um, at least for me, you know, the, the failure mode sort of was, I'm going to go, like, I'm going to buy, you know, I, back in the day, like, I, I, I learned programming because I was really interested in, uh, in games development and just fascinated by computer graphics and all of that stuff. And then, you know, when the, the Quake and Doom source code was out there, I was like, oh, my God, like, this is so amazing. And being able to read this and, like, I was playing this and I wasn't even allowed to because it was banned in Germany. Um, <laughs> but, um, and I had these, like, grand goals of, like, okay, you know, my first game is going to be this, like, uh, online multiplayer game and it's going to have like all of these things that that uh, that that were just impossible you know for for me to actually implement and um and it was just constantly failing at that level until i realized like no you know you got to go and like make a tetris clone and like do this other thing you know like take it very very easy and then see if you can get anywhere and then you can you can build it up and scale it because you could very well like spend you know two years building out a game engine or some engine for your for your website and never actually um, get it out there in the world and um, you know I said to, to this day like anytime you go to a game development forum there will always be that person that's like yeah you know I'm just, I just got this book and like I'm learning C++ and now I want to build like a World of Warcraft clone or something and, and like, <laughs> yeah this is just history repeats itself and uh, uh, I think but I think that was a good good lesson to learn yeah definitely so I guess the last one for you it's like uh, what are some mistakes maybe that you've done in the past in your code base or in your deployment setup that you've kind of corrected like what or maybe even like what other mistakes that you see other people making um i think for my stuff um yeah having that one app as sort of like a not a microservice really um but like as a separate uh um app um or you know uh, it was a mistake trying to split up the monolith and um i should have just kept more stuff inside the the monolithic app just because it's a big time saver having to deal only with one code base and being able to roll out um, you know api changes or internal like interfaces changes uh, across the board um, just because that's um, that's been very helpful for my internal workflow and um, you know the, the the company where i worked at previously we were very much um, it was like a different scale and so we we ended up building a lot of things in like a microservices architecture and it, it made a lot of sense for that type of setup but uh, maybe initially i was thinking like oh yeah i'll carry some of that over because obviously that's how you do things and then i realized like wait a minute you know monolith is still the way to go if you're a very very small team and if you're i think in your in a space um you know like this type of web website i think it just makes sense for it to be a monolith because we're not like globally distributed uh, search engine or anything like that you know like if somebody's doing that like this different advice applies for sure but um, um yeah I, I think that would probably be like one like architectural challenge that i brought upon myself where i was like like now i'm actually building this stuff back in and kind of have the monolith like reabsorb it and um, i'm happier that way because i don't have to synchronize package versions and you know have like an internal package registry and do all this stuff that that you really would need um, to do a microservices uh, based architecture yeah i think i think that's probably like the the number one thing where i feel like i would do this slightly differently now yeah. Other than that, I'm, I mean, I think with with a site like that, the biggest architectural decision is: Am I going to go with WordPress and a bunch of plugins, or am I, am I going to build my own or pay someone to build my own? And I was really on the fence there um, for a long time. 
And, you know, I was actually, when I was working on the sort of real Python reboot, uh, uh, I actually had like a version set up on WordPress that was using all these different plugins and stuff. And then um, I had this realization one morning where I was, you know, trying to upgrade that or try out a different like code highlighter, highlighter plugin. And, and like the whole thing like basically came to a crashing halt. And I was like trying to figure out what was happening there and didn't really didn't really understand or know how, how WordPress works internally. And I was like, this is maybe going to get me started a lot faster, but then it's going to be a massive liability. Like, I have no idea how to main this, maintain this stuff. Uh, I don't like working with PHP. And it kind of sucks that a big Python site is running on PHP. Like, and just philosophically, it seems strange to me. And so, um, uh, yeah, and then and I went the route of, of building it up with Django. And uh, again, like, I think there could be different perspectives on it. Like, financially, it probably didn't make sense to do it, honestly. Like, if I, if I count for all the time that I invested into this, um, uh, it, it probably didn't make sense. But um, I'm still very happy with that decision and like the code base that I have now and uh, and how it all looks and how it all works and that I know 100% you know how how every little little detail of it works internally that that's giving me some satisfaction as well. Yeah, no, for sure. I think you've done a great job on that site, and it's one of those weird things too, right? It's like if you didn't build it yourself and you just use like WordPress, then who knows where you even would be now? Because it's like, well, I don't know how you do like your training material and stuff like that, but it's like real Python in itself is a you know, a pretty big Django Python application and you just working on that project, like it levels up your Python skills, which in turn turn into tutorials and maybe courses and stuff like that. True. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's kind of, this is like win-win situation, right? Where you, you get to learn and teach at the same time. And uh, yeah, I, I find all of that like super, super rewarding. That's true. Yeah. So Dan, thanks a lot for coming on the running in production podcast. It was a real treat having you on the show. Before we wrap this up, I mean, do you want to share any links maybe to like like YouTube channels, Twitter accounts, GitHub profiles, stuff like that? Um, yeah, absolutely. So I think the best way to find um, the stuff that I talked about uh, directly and then see it live uh, in a live environment is to just go to realpython.com. Um, and then you'll find, you know, lots of Python tutorials and uh, video courses and other resources like learning paths and uh, quizzes that, that you can take to, to, to check your learning. Um, if people want to find me personally on Twitter, um, they can do it uh, under at debater underscore org. So uh, my personal website and domain is debater.org. So that explains the Twitter handle. But uh, yeah, for anything related to RealPython, we're at RealPython pretty much um, anywhere, including YouTube. And then my personal is debater underscore org. Going back to what you said like an hour ago, because this show is running pretty long, uh, if you want people to ask you a question about this podcast or real python in general should they tag your personal account or should they do like at real python i think personal is uh, personal is, is is best um I, I also have my dms open although if it's like a question that somebody would you know, benefit from in public then uh, uh i prefer to answer it in public because otherwise i'll get probably the same question a couple of times um but uh yeah like my, my personal is, is a good way to reach me there awesome thanks again dan awesome yeah thanks for for inviting me and uh, that was fun no problem. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.